Hello and welcome to another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I hope you're staying safe and indeed sane. This is episode 204 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter or X, Instagram and or Facebook. I personally am also now on Blue Sky. So if you're also on there, do follow along, say hello. In this episode, we hear from Nilay Özok Gündoğan, assistant professor of history at Florida State University and the author of The Kurdish Nobility in the Ottoman Empire, Loyalty, Autonomy and Privilege, published by Edinburgh University Press. The book narrates the rise and fall of the Kurdish nobility in the eastern provinces of the Ottoman Empire from the 16th century through to the 19th century, a time when a number of Kurdish nobles, beys or begs, actually had quite a significant degree of autonomy under the Ottoman umbrella. The book particularly focuses on one noble family based in the Emirate of Palu in today's El Azur province and narrates what happened there in the 19th century because it was then from the 1840s when the relative autonomy and privileges of local leaders in Ottoman Kurdistan were systematically abolished. That process went hand in hand with the empire's modernization and centralization as the decision makers in Istanbul sought to catch up with developments in the advancing states of Europe. The book traces this historic transformation and examines how it changed Palu and elsewhere, as well as the long-term impact of how political authority was exercised in eastern Anatolia from the late Ottoman era up to today. Before we get started with the interview, let me appeal once again for support. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together. And I do need listeners support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It is extremely rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks. And I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon isn't just a nice thing to do. It also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or e-books. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication. Ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. 
To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation-proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Nilay Özok Gündoğan. She writes in the book that when Kurdistan came under Ottoman rule in the 16th century, the Kurdish elites of the existing principalities in the area were incorporated into the Ottoman realm, mainly through a system that recognized their hereditary rulership. Administrative arrangements were implemented to accord them varying degrees of autonomous rule, which shifted over time according to political, economic and military circumstances. So I started by asking Nilay to outline broadly the political situation on the ground after the Ottoman conquest of much of Kurdistan and how how power was organized before the 19th century before it came under the ottoman rule as you also mentioned mostly power was decentralized in what we know as kurdistan which is like a basically a border area between two powerful centralized empires between the safavids and the ottoman empire so before the ottoman entry we don't have like a centralized state structure in the area and once the ottomans entered the area after a process of negotiation, some of the Kurdish principalities came under the Ottoman rule. And the ruling structures or the administrative organization that came about after the Ottoman entry is kind of like a negotiation, an outcome of a negotiation. Negotiation in the sense that there are degrees of autonomy, degrees of Ottoman control, depending on the region, depending on the particular principality or area. What that means here is that there is a couple of emirates where Ottoman power is really, or Ottoman direct administration is really limited. But in other parts of Kurdistan, there are ways in which we see that the Ottoman imperial state did establish its more conventional or classical, as we describe it right now, organizations. For instance, in the Arbeker, which is like one of the two Beylar Beyliks in the region, we see that the Ottoman state established the classical Sanjak system, conducted the Tahrir or the surveys, population and land surveys, where the Ottomans conduct wherever they conquer a new area. And there is also Tamar, which is the land grants given to cavalrymen. In our conventional understanding, we look at these two things, like the land surveys, population surveys, Tahrirs and Tamars, as an indication of the ability of the Ottoman state to establish relatively larger control or, you know, governing more directly. But when it comes to these specific principalities, where, as you also mentioned, we see hereditary uh, rule, things are different. That's why we assess the history of these particular principalities differently, because we don't see Tahrir in those. We don't see the land and population surveys. We don't see the Tamar. So Kurdistan is not all that unique in that context. The absence of Tahrir and Tamar is not all that unique, but it indicates something. It indicates a relatively higher degree of autonomy granted to the local administrators being the Kurdish emirs in this 
particular context. So most of the time when we think of the region and when it came under the Ottoman rule, we tend to think that there was one standard arrangement that the Ottomans used to incorporate Kurdistan into the Ottoman administrative system. But that is not the case. The major thing that we have to keep in mind here is that there was like regional diversity in the sense that Ottomans implemented systems across Kurdistan based on different degrees of autonomy and different types of institutions. I think that is the first thing that we have to keep in mind. And the Ottoman state basically continued this policy of multiple different, almost a patchwork of administrative methods in the region based on local conditions, based on relationships with local notables Mm -hmm. for centuries. And it seemed to work pretty well for a while, but obviously the Ottoman state embarked on a process of modernization in the 19th century. And this essentially meant centralization in line with the European powers of the day. And the intention was basically to catch up with those European powers And obviously part of this centralization policy was the aim to undercut the economic and political power of local forces. And of course, in the Kurdistan region, that obviously meant the kind of long established Kurdish nobility that ruled to various degrees of autonomy in the region. And that obviously resulted in the breakup of this autonomous structure, resulted in the breakup of the local Kurdish leaders' hereditary rule, which had previously been kind of recognized by the central Ottoman authorities for centuries. It's obviously a very crude overview that I'm giving there. But are the basic outlines of that correct or are there nuances that I've looked over there? Yeah, as far as the like the uh, end of the story is concerned, yes, it is. It is correct. Like we do observe a change in the ways in which Ottomans wanted to govern this region, and that is a manifestation of the changing notions of power, and that had ramifications for Kurdistan as well. Mm-hmm. And. Obviously, this has resulted in a seismic change in how these regions were administered. Mm-hmm. And today, many people look back at this 19th century centralization, modernization process as being a seismic shift, basically. And according to the standard Kurdish nationalist narrative, these emirates came under the Ottoman rule in the 16th century. They had these privileges, they secured this autonomy to a certain extent, and that was undermined by the 19th century, particularly the Tanzimat era, when the Ottoman state very systematically undermined their autonomy via military operations, centralization policies, and basically the aim was to abolish the autonomy of these regions, bring it in under central control. And that had obviously long-lasting negative consequences, according to this narrative. Mm-hmm. Could mm-hmm. you just talk about that narrative, you know, how how this process of centralization has been viewed according to this narrative where mm-hmm. the negative consequences on the ground in Kurdistan are obvious for everybody you know, in the long term because it meant a huge disruption in the political arrangements in the region and it led to the mm-hmm. basically cutting off of the authorities in the region and the bringing of power from mm-hmm. those regions to the central authorities essentially in Istanbul. Yes, Absolutely. Now, as you also mentioned, we know that there is like a shift in the Ottoman notions of governmentality or state power in the 19th century, like from around the 1820s through the 1870s. We see that from the Ottoman state's point of view, all the intermediary actors or structures that operated in the Ottoman realm from its early centuries 
they needed to be eliminated. They needed to be abolished. And this like modern sense of power was based on a notion that there has to be a more direct relationship with the population. And of course, there is more specific practical needs, underlying needs here, mainly among them being taxation, a modern system of taxation and the conscription. Ottomans tried to centralize its taxation system and its administration in its provinces in the 19th century. And when it comes to Kurdistan, there is, like you said, a conventional historical account. And that conventional understanding of how Kurdistan experienced these processes of centralization and modernization, that notion is based on a standard chronology. And that chronology is based on a perceived understanding of how power operated and how autonomy was organized. And according to this conventional notion, in the 16th century, the Ottoman administrators had a relatively better approach or positive approach to the notion of Kurdish autonomy. And the Kurdish principalities, they were given a significant degree of autonomy in fiscal and military and legal matters. And again, in this conventional narrative, that autonomy persists for about three centuries. And in the 19th century, with large-scale military operations and an administrative change, Ottoman state abolishes that degree of autonomy and establishes direct administration or direct governance. And that, from again the point of view of this conventional historiography, resulted in the disintegration of the traditional ruling structures in Kurdistan, mainly among them being the Kurdish emirates or Kurdish ruling houses, principalities. And another part of this historiography is that a, like a period of chaos, unruliness, and lack of central authority come after the disintegration of the emirates, and that power vacuum is filled by tribes, and the tribal structures, in the absence of the principalities, they fight with each other all the time. They are, uh, you know, unruly. They don't recognize any authority. And that is like the beginning of the Kurdish plight and Kurdish statelessness and the oppressive regimes that came in the 20th century. They just built off of this beginning that came with the disintegration of the Kurdish principalities. So that is the conventional notion. And you're really right in saying that that defines our notions of how Kurdistan experienced this really formative time period in Ottoman history. So your book specifically looks at Palu in Anatolia, and that was one of the five emirates that were granted mm -hmm. this special position as hukumet or government up to the 19th century. And you look in great detail in the book at how autonomy and how authority was exercised in this emirate and what happened there in the 19th century. So in this centralization process, how that was experienced in this specific emirate on the ground. And you talk about how it actually complicates some of that conventional mm -hmm. historical narrative that we we're talking about there. And you talk about how the history of Palu is not one of necessarily heroic resistance, but actually of a noble family that justified its fiscal, military and administrative privileges by referring to the imperial state's recognition. So could you just talk about how that process of change in the 19th century was experienced in Palu? Like what was the situation before and what happened throughout that century? And how was uh, that change manifest on the ground? 
Sure. Now, you know, we talked about this conventional picture, right? But all conventional historiographical, historiographical narratives, they have a kernel of truth to them, right? The problem with them is not necessarily their, like, parts of their truthfulness, but the problem is that they are based on overgeneralizations from specific cases or specific historical experiences. And when it comes to Kurdistan, that is absolutely the case. And this conventional account of destruction, like Ottoman states entry into the region with huge military power and the Kurdish elite's heroic resistance, yes, that is kind of partly true, only if we are looking at particular emirates. And that narrative comes from mostly the the most powerful by the 19th century, the most powerful Kurdish emirates that really operated in Kurdistan or in their respective spheres of authority as state-like entities. And Bedirhan Bey of Jizr or Jizre is the best example here. You know, he operated like a state-like entity in the region. He had his own justice systems, he minted his coins, and he had absolute control in the region. And we have other examples in different parts of Kurdistan that exemplify this idea that by the 19th century in Kurdistan, there were really powerful ruling elites and powerful ruling houses. And the Ottoman state tried to abolish their power, military and fiscal power, using military campaigns. But I, like you said, the case that I am looking at, Palu, does not really fit with this picture. Palu is, it's different. It's not like they did not have this heroic resistance against the Ottoman state centralization policies. So my story in my mind, when I started to write about Palu, I started with the 19th century. That is when the Ottoman state started to eliminate some of the classical or some of the conventional tools that it used to govern this particular emirate. And then I went backwards and tried to understand what is it that the Ottoman state is trying to change here. And you're right, in the 19th century, starting from the 1840s, the Ottoman state tried to take away the hereditary privileges that the nobility had from the 16th century onwards. If you go back to the 16th century, I mentioned that there was like degrees of autonomy and different types of political and economic institutions that the Ottoman state used in the region. And if we put it on the spectrum, Polo is really one of the areas where autonomy, like where a Kurdish elite had the utmost autonomy. So between the 16th and mid-18th centuries, Polo nobility had a really high degree of political, administrative, fiscal, and military autonomy recognized as such by the Ottoman state. And yes, we know things changed in the 19th century, but the Kurdish elites and these structures did not remain unchanged in between the 16th and 19th centuries. And just like we deploy more nuanced categories when we look at the other parts of the empire, we should look at Kurdistan using the very same nuanced tools and understand how the notion of autonomy itself changes across centuries, right? Even though the on the paper hereditary privileges and autonomy remains, the nature of that autonomy or the institutions through which the Kurdish elites exercise their rule changed over time. The notion or the actual ways in which 
power was exercised and autonomy took its shape, changed on the ground in light of changing fiscal and military circumstances. And so from around the 16th century until the 18th century, hereditary privilege was based on the understanding that the Kurdish nobles would serve in the Ottoman military campaigns. And Kurdish nobles, or Palu nobles specifically, they participated in the Ottoman military campaigns in Iran and in other military campaigns, really in different parts of the empire, not just the eastern campaigns. And then that was kind of the agreement that they continued to maintain their hereditary rule in the region. But coming to the 18th century, a lot of things changed, mainly among them being the Ottoman state needed the cooperation or the support of the Kurdish nobles for something else. And that was the mines, Keban Argani mines, and also Gumushane, which is like all of them constitute the parts of the special mine administration that the Ottoman state established in the region in the 1720s, because mine service replaced military service as one of the expectations of the Ottoman state that the Polonobles needed to perform in order to keep their hereditary privileges. And so that military service requirement was replaced by mine service by the 18th century. All this is to say that before the great transformations of the 19th century, things had been already changing. Changing in the sense that the notion of privilege was now different, the degree of autonomy was different, fiscal arrangements, land ownership, taxation, these are also, they had been changing on the ground from the 16th through the 18th centuries. But yes, the 19th century is a big transformation because the Ottoman state consciously, they determined to take away the privileges, fiscal and military and administrative privileges of the Kurdish nobility, specifically to polo bags here. But then again, when we look at the polo bags or the case of polo, there's something quite curious, right? In the 1840s, the Ottoman state organized one of its largest military campaigns against one of its own elites with the Bedir Khan Bey case, right? They wanted to get rid of his power and his fiscal basis of and economic basis of his power in the 19th century. But when we look at Polu, I don't see an Ottoman state that is all that determined or all that aggressive or all that interested in destroying everything. When I read the documents in terms of how Ottoman administrators approached the notion of the Polu nobles autonomy, I see that there is a lot of back and forth. There is a lot of questioning among the Ottoman administrators in terms of how to handle this process, how to take care of these privileges or how to deal with these privileges that were granted to the ancestors of this elite group back in the 16th century by Sultan Suleiman the first, magnificent, and really renewed and continued without much change for three centuries. So what I'm seeing here is not an Ottoman state ready to organize a large military campaign to get rid of these elites, but rather a state that is questioning how do we do this in a way that kind of do not damage the legitimacy of the Ottoman imperial household and the legacy 
of the former Ottoman sultans. And that shapes the entire process of how the Ottomans manage this process, how they approach to this process of the polonobility's hereditary rights and privileges. Now, some conventional narratives say that the Ottomans' removal of Kurdish autonomous leaders in the 19th century during that modernization process actually led to the regression of the region in the long term, damaging development. And part of that narrative is also the argument that undermining the economic and political autonomy of these Kurdish emirates created a political vacuum that was marked by lawlessness and tribal strife. And according to that perspective as well, this lawlessness empowered religious leaders, religious sheikhs to rise up the political hierarchy and to basically become the new political leadership within Kurdish society. And that is a narrative that you actually challenge in the book, saying that it's not backed by solid empirical research. Could you just talk about that? You know, what actually came after this modernization process in the 19th century? What came after the removal of local Mm -hmm. Kurdish emirates autonomy? The first thing that we have to keep in mind is that Ottoman history of Kurdistan or Kurdistan in the Ottoman Empire is one of the least studied topics in Ottoman historiography. We have a lot of narratives like this that we still use without much change or without much questioning, but we really don't have that much empirical research to show how this process unfolded after the abolishment of the hereditary privileges of the Kurdish nobility. Now, Yes, I question this narrative, and that narrative is based on a set of essentialist and also orientalizing perspectives on Kurdish history. What do I mean by this? Well, this notion is first and foremost teleological, because it is based on the notion that the Kurdish religious leadership, which became more prominent in the late 19th century, they became powerful because the Kurdish nobles disappeared. And prior to that, there was lawlessness and there was tribal strife and whatnot that describes a lack of authority and unwillingness in Kurdistan. Again, my problem with this historiography is twofold. One, it's based on a set of essentialist notions about Kurdish history based on the notion that tribe means unruliness. Tribal structures lack any type of recognition of a legal system and left to their own devices, they create chaos and then they are violent. That's the first thing. The second essentializing and orientalizing perspective is based on how we look at the Kurdish religious elites, right? basically, the notion that they replaced the Kurdish nobles as the most powerful figures. And then that is the reason behind the Kurds' failure to have a state, to have modern structures and to have modern institutions. So these are the two problems with the established historiography. In order to understand what actually happened, first and foremost, we need more research. We really need more research because you know, we have limited scholarship, but most of them either focus on the moment of the destruction of the Kurdish nobility, or they focus on the period after the 1890s, during which the Kurdish religious figures become more prominent. They become the the, the voices of the, uh, the Kurdish nationalist movements. The period in between, from the 1840s, 
up to the 1890s, we really don't know that much about that. Remember what I said at the beginning, Kurdistan, we're looking at a huge geography with lots of different power configurations, elite structures, economic organizations, cultural structures, that it is kind of really not possible to come up with like a blanket statement about how the abolishment of the privileges of the Kurdish nobility affected the region. But I can answer this question from my own case because I conducted depth research to understand what happened. Is this true here? Is this a picture of tribal conflict becoming the new normal? Is this really the case in and around Palu? And that is really not the case. It is not the case because I can show that there is lots of different ways in which local actors, that also includes the Kurdish nobility, and the tribes around Polo themselves and the tribal leadership, that they interact with the Ottoman administrators using Ottoman institutions to kind of operate in these new legal and political and administrative system. What I mean by this is not that there was not tribal strife. There was. There, there was. I see instances of that. But what I see here is a new notion of law and legalities in the making. And different components of the Kurdish society are kind of like engaging with this new process. And they are trying to shape it or use it, but become a part of that. So in other places, for example, areas closer to the border, like Kurdish rulers in and around Van and Hakkari, they didn't even lose their power in this time period. Yes, some of them were exiled, some of them lost power, but there is not like a blanket historical process leading up to the abolishment of their entire power base overnight with Ottoman military campaigns. So I don't even know which part of this problematic historical narrative to address here, because most of it, first and foremost, comes from the privilege of knowing the end of the story, which is the fact that, yes, we know that at some point Kurdish religious leadership became influential, but it doesn't mean a direct transfer of authority. And another component of this narrative is that Kurdistan became, like, in a linear way, it became impoverished. It lost its many of its resources, production decreased. But then again, for one thing, there is overgeneralization here. But the second thing is that the abolishment of the Kurdish nobility's privileges is not the only historical force of change in the region. Kurdistan became the scene for multiple wars in the 1890s, and there was lots of population movements influencing the demographics in the area. There is like ecological change, and there was like famines. So even if we can talk about an deterioration of the economic conditions in Kurdistan, the changes in power configuration cannot be isolated and taken as the foremost parameter here. The last chapter in the book focuses on massacres in 1895 when Armenians in Palu and other towns throughout the empire became the target of deadly attacks, forced conversions Mm -hmm. and seizure and destruction of their property. So how did the events studied in your book, that process of the authority being taken from the traditional Kurdish Mm. leaders and removed in that modernization process, how did those events perhaps prepare the ground for what occurred in 1895? 
Yes, we know that 1895 massacres, they happened in different parts of the empire and Palu was one among many areas where violence took place. In the book, I do talk about this aspect of, okay, what really happened? First and foremost, I try to understand what really happened in Palu because the 1895 massacres, that historiography itself, until quite recently, was very much based on the notion that they were the the beginning of a long genocidal process that came all the way until 1915. But now more recent work shows more local histories, micro histories, to understand, yes, there was like this violent atmosphere throughout the empire, but how did and why did violence take place within specific regions, within specific areas? And when I look at Palu, I look at a lot of specific dynamics of change to understand how and why violence took place. And I look at like three dynamics. The first one is that is, I think that addresses your question about the loss of the, the loss of the Kurdish elite's power, the bags. I look at the Kurdish nobles to understand what their role was, what the impact of the changing of their power was on the unfolding of violence, and what was the effect of the changing land structure from around the 1850s onwards on the local tensions or local conflicts between the Armenians and the Muslim population. And here, again, I do not isolate the bags as just like one factor, or I do not I do not isolate the conflict between the Muslims and the Christians as one force of change in and of itself. But I look at two more things. One is the Ottoman state's presence in the region and the Armenian issue at large at the imperial level. So Begs had been already in conflict with the majority of the wealthy Armenian sectors of Palu in the region. And that was based on the fact that when the lands of the Kurdish nobles were confiscated, the new owners of land came mostly from the Armenian population. So the state entered the region, confiscated their lands, the Begs lands, and then opened them up for purchase. And the new owners of land were Armenians, and that kind of created a significant degree of resentment among the Kurdish Begs. And the second factor is the imperial situation in which Armenians had had been turning into really problem areas in the eyes of the Ottoman state, right? Their Armenian nationalist movement was flagged and then Armenians were under a lot of scrutiny in all parts of the empire. And the third thing is the state, the state had been very adamant about instituting its power to increase its economic resources from particularly Palo area. What that means here is that it put a lot of pressure on the rural sectors of Palu, and it, most of them were subjected to double taxation, over taxation, because they paid their taxes to their landlords and the Ottoman state as well. And on top of that, there is a famine in Palu from 1890 through 1891. So all this is to say that ongoing conflicts between the Kurdish Begs and the Armenians and the political situation that concerned the Armenians at the imperial level 
And also the ongoing rural problems or the rural crisis around 1890-1891, these created an environment conducive for violence. And now, going back to your original question, that was about, okay, the Kurdish begs loss of authority and the increasing power of the tribal structures how did that influence the unfolding of violence? Now, sadly, what we don't know that much about what actually happened in Palu in these four or five days in the fall of 1895. So what happened in 1895 in Palu mostly comes from accounts that were written afterwards, like memoirs and like how it is remembered. But still, what we know happened in Palu is based on some of the tribes coming mostly from the Darsim area and becoming like perpetrators in this violent episode. And yes, this is something that I question in the book. What was the role of the Kurdish Begs? Were they per the perpetrators? Did they really provoke violence or did they try to protect Armenians? What is happening here? given that there had been an ongoing tension between the Armenians and them, the Kurdish elites for several decades by then. And the second question that I ask in the book is, well, if chances are not that high, but if they wanted to protect Armenians within this particular context, did they have enough power to do that? Did they have enough authority to control the degree of violence or stop it altogether? Now, First and foremost, some accounts indicate that for the Kurdish pegs, this particular context became an opportunity to settle their past accounts with the Armenians. Past accounts in the sense that taking back their lands, right? Or subduing the Armenian rural population to their previous positions as sharecroppers. So a big aspect of this process concerns relations of production in the rural sector and how for the Kurdish bags, this was an opportunity to go back to a time in which they were the landowners and the Armenians were mostly the sharecroppers and laborers. But the second thing is, okay, did the bags have the authority to do something in face of several tribes coming down and then surrounding Palu's center and initiating violence in the countryside as well? My answer to this is no. The Palu nobility by that time had become part of the, the Ottoman administrative structure as local administrators, and then they lost that power as well. But they didn't have military power because they lost that like about a century ago, and they lost their symbolic capital in terms of how they related to Kurdish tribal structures. So they did not have any authority to influence the actions of the tribal elites and tribal structures in the region. So they didn't have any symbolic authority or military tools to stop violence at that point. And yes, that is like a culmination of half a century long process of the Kurdish elites losing their military power.
to conclude, I wonder if you could talk about the position that Palu has today, because it's a district in today's Elaza in East Anatolia. You talk a bit in the book about visiting Palu and also how in Kurdish historical memory, Palu's significance actually today stems mainly from the fact that it was the hometown of Sheikh Said, obviously the leader of the 1925 revolt against the Turkish government. And despite that significance in Kurdish historical memory, contemporary Palu has essentially, as you describe it, lost its Kurdish character. And it's now this center really of Turkish Islamic conservatism. You talk about how the descendants actually of the former Palu nobility are actually very distant and expressly against the idea of Kurdishness and identify basically with mainstream Turkish nationalist, religious, ethnic identity. Mm-hmm. Could you just talk about the position that Palu has in, in today's Turkey and why that's the case, you know, compared to this period 150 years ago that you were studying in the book? It seems like a huge shift that's occurred in that period of time. Mm-hmm. Yes, your observations are definitely accurate in terms of what Palu represents in current Kurdish historical memory and what it looks like in terms of political and cultural identities at the present. Now, I bring my story until 1896, which is the immediate period after the 1895 massacres, but the period from 1896 until the establishment of the early republic is also critical to understand that shift from an overwhelmingly Kurdish and also Armenian cultural context to a more Turkish and Sunni Muslim identity, at least at the level of the elite structure, right? For the larger population, that can't be true because we know that there is like a sizable Zaza-speaking, Zazaki-speaking population in and around Palu, and we can't say much about their identity. But we know, looking, seen from the cultural expressions and then from the current parties that they vote, it is very obvious that the Kurdish heritage or the Kurdish part of their identity is really pushed to the background. But one thing that I need to emphasize about Palu to answer your question is that what we describe as Palu right now is not the same thing as what Palu was in terms of its territorial and geographical scope back in the 19th century. Because with the administrative reorganization policies from the 1850s onwards, the Ottoman state consciously actually took away lands from what used to be the Palu Emirate. And what Palu is right now is much smaller compared to what it was. So it's a smaller district and it's lost its previous significance in terms of what it represented in larger context of Kurdistan. And here, yes, the 1925 Sheikh Said rebellion, because Sheikh Said was from Palu, so in Kurdish historical memory, that still pertains, right? That is still important that Palu had that place in this large-scale resistance movements against the early Republican government. But now there is one piece of the puzzle that still is waiting to be solved, which is the the position of the descendants of the Palubegs within the context of the Sheikh Said rebellion. To what extent they supported the rebellion? To what extent their influence mattered? How did they relate with the state? How did they relate to the revolt itself? These are questions that need to be answered. But beyond that, yes, when I had my conversation with 
the descendants, yes, Kurdish identity is not something that defines their existence that much at the present. And that is also true for the larger segments of the Palu population. There is one actually descendant of the Palu nobility who represents something really different in terms of his cultural identity. There was this one person who identified with the Kurdishness of the Palu elites and what it represented in terms of larger Kurdish history. But except him, who was not based in Palu but in Istanbul, the descendants of the Palu Begs right now, they do not identify with the Kurdish identity or politics that much. That was Nilay Özok Gündoğan. Many thanks to her for joining for episode 204. Please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going, and you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Spread the word, give us a shout out on your own social media accounts. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Follow me, William Armstrong, on Blue Sky. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to William John Armstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality, original, on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.